Back in 1947, 1947, there was a man named Robert Pierce. And Robert Pierce worked for like a religious nonprofit organization called um, Youth for Christ. Youth for Christ. And so its mission was to empower young people to go all over the world and evangelize the good news, bring the good news in different parts of the world. It was like a, a missions um, organization, right? Um, Robert started his journey when he first was, was going to start for the first time. He started his journey um, toward China is where he wanted to go, right? Um, but he only had money to take him to Honolulu. Like, he, he couldn't afford to fly all the way across the Pacific. So he stopped in Honolulu um, until he was able to kind of raise more money to then find his way to get to China. Well, while he was there, there was a teacher who introduced him to a battered and abandoned child. This child had gone through it, had been beaten, abused, neglected. And the teacher said, I'm unable to take care of this child by myself. <laughs> so she asked Robert, what are you going to do about it? Right? Somebody was like, oh, that's exactly what I would have been like. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, I don't know. I'm on my way to China. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm not even stopping. Well, at that moment, he had $5 in his pocket. And that's all he had left. He had not, like, raised the money yet. He had $5 to his name. He says, listen, this is all I have right now. But I promise that every month I will send you the same amount. And he gave her the $5. Eventually, he raised money and got to China. And in, his, in the first several months, he, they saw thousands come to Christ. They saw thousands come to Christ in the first four months of the evangelistic rallies. However, while he was there, he noticed widespread hunger. And what drew his attention were all the hungry children. If you've ever gone, I don't know how many of you guys have ever taken a, a trip to a third world country, right? Um, or, or even, you know, the, um, parts in the Caribbean, right? When you go, how you see children outside by themselves. Anyone ever seen that picture? Like completely on their own. Completely on their own. I have seen, I have seen children like paired up where an older sibling as old as seven or eight years old is taking care of a younger sibling like Eliel right there by themselves in the streets. And so what he saw was this widespread hunger and what drew, what drew his attention were all these children that were hungry and starving. And one day he began, you know, he, he, he started to feel this intense compassion for these children. One day he wrote uh, a prayer in the cover of this Bible, inside the Bible. Some people don't like to write in it. It's okay if you write in your Bible and for notes and stuff. It's okay. <laughs> he wrote, let my heart be broken with the things that break the heart of God. That's what he wrote in his Bible. And every time he would open his Bible, he would see it. He would see it. He would see it. Using a movie camera that he acquired, I don't know how, he traveled across all of Asia, and he began to film and take pictures of all these starving children. Now, at first, you're like, yo, that's invasion of privacy, right? That's the first thing we'd say. But he took that footage, and he came back to the United States, and then he traveled the country showing all the churches that he could the images of the children starving in different parts of the world. And then he challenged them, and he said, would you send money 
to these children and adopt one as your own. In 1950, just three years later, since he started his journey, he, in 47, he left, beginning his journey with Christ, uh, Youth for Christ. And three years later, he incorporated his own personal crusade as World Vision. He was the founder of World Vision. And if you guys don't know how World Vision works, you adopt a child and you send, like if you choose $10, it's $10 every month, every month. As a matter of fact, uh, Lighthouse, we have a World Vision child as well um, that we've been, I think it's been nine or ten years now that, that right, that we've been uh, um, supporting. Um, there's a pastor named Richard Halverson, and he wrote about Robert Pierce. He said he prayed more earnestly and imp- importunely than anyone else I have ever known. It was as though prayer burned within him. Robert Pierce functioned from a broken heart. He said that he functioned from a broken heart. What drove him was a broken heart. What brought ideas to him was a broken heart. What called him to action was a broken heart. Was a broken heart. Today's message is titled Broken Heart. But we're not talking about the heart as it breaks when your girlfriend or boyfriend leaves you. We're not talking about that kind of broken heart. We're talking about a different type of broken heart that we should all desire. This is, a, this is the broken heart that we do want, right? This is a week two from a four-week series that we've been doing um, titled God Use Me. God Use Me. And many times, again, like I mentioned last week, uh, we have questions, and we say, God, what do I have to do so you use me? Or, or how would you use me? I mean, what, where do I need to be in my life? Or, or sometimes we look, and we're just like, what kind of people does God use? And we have these questions, because I believe that deep down inside, we all want to serve the kingdom. I believe deep down inside, we all want to be used by God. And what hinders that many times are the things that we've been talking about week one, which was excuses. How many of us have had excuses in the past? How many? Right, I'm raising my hand too. I've got excuses. Sometimes I still have excuses. And last week we talked about some of those excuses that we say. You know, oh, we talked about the, the task being too demanding as we looked at Jeremiah being called to, being a, to be a prophet. Uh, are you sure about this, God? I mean, I don't know. My, my dad was a priest. My grandfather was a priest. And you call me a prophet? I don't know. There's just too much in that. And then his response is, yo, I, but I knew you. I chose you before you were even a thought, before you were in your mother's womb. I chose you for a purpose. And many times our excuse about uh, that's going to be too much for me, God chose you. He chose you for a purpose. You're not, uh, some of us will say we talked about being inadequate. And we have to understand that it's not on our strength that we do anything anyway. I think last night we said um, that we're all inadequate. We are all inadequate. We all don't have everything. We all lack in areas in our life. But when we hold on to him and he does what he wants to do through us, he is glorified. Another excuse that we said was that it's not the right time. 
It's not time yet, God. I got things to do. I got people to see, places to go. I want to live my life. And some of us here, some of the older ones here that said that, now will look back and be like, I only wish I would have never waited so long. I would have wished I would have never waited so long to be in the hands of the Father. Today, we look at a broken heart. The excuses were some things that keep us from being used by God, but not having a broken heart is a second thing, and we're going to be talking about that today. Jeremiah, just like Robert Pierce, he served with a broken heart. He served with a broken heart. He was called the weeping prophet. Most people know him for that. He was always crying. He was always crying. I'm doing bad. I don't, I don't cry as much anymore, right? I don't know. It's being, I, guess, I guess it's the North Philly thing. I'm being in North Philly so long. My heart does break, and, and I do get emotional many times, and I don't want to be compared to Jeremiah because apparently he cried a lot. But he cried because his, brought, his heart broke over the condition of the people. He would look at the people. He would look at them, and he would see their condition, and his heart would break, and he cried for them. Pierce's work was to raise money for needy children, hungry children, right? Um, but Jeremiah's ministry was much more difficult. <laughs> he was called to deliver a hard message, repent, right? It was a message that required them to repent. It required them to change and, and alter their lives. Just like back then, today, that message is still hard because people don't want to change. People don't want to repent because you know what repent means. It means to not do it again. And sometimes we say, oh, we're going to get into that in a minute. I'm getting ahead of myself. We're going to get there. We're going to get there. Just like today, people don't respond well to personal message that require behavioral changes. The typical response is like, who are you to tell me what to do? That's what people say. Who are you to tell me what to do? You know, um, I think one of the hardest parts of ministry that I, I, I'll share with you, for me, for me, because personally, I, you know, I, I, can't, I, I was different. Before I was serving in ministry, I was like, do you. That's what you want to do. You're going to do what you're going to do. If I give you advice and you don't take it, then that's you, Right? But it's a little different in ministry, right? My heart, ha- my heart is broken when I see the condition of the people. And like Jeremiah, right, when you're trying to tell someone, when you're trying to tell someone, listen, your life's not right right now, and it's not that I'm judging you, but based on the Bible here, based on what the Word of God says, things need to change. Well, who do you think you are? Someone that loves you enough to tell you that you messed up. Someone that loves you enough to tell you that the way that you're heading is not the right way. Someone that loves you enough to tell you what many people won't tell you, like people that go to American Idol. Please, you telling me they don't got no one in their lives that loves them? You seen some of these people that definitely can't sing? You telling me nobody in your life loved you enough to tell you don't go to American Idol. You will be on YouTube for the rest of your life. 
They'll make, they'll make remixes out of, your, out of your auditions. Right? But at that moment, at that moment, can you imagine someone saying, yo, 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 you, you cannot sing. You can't sing. Don't do it. At that moment, it's, first of all, it seems like a horrible thing to say. And the person receiving it is like, how could you? I thought you were my friend. You know, it's a similar situation. How could you tell me that? I thought you were my pastor. That's why I'm telling you this. That's why. There's no judgment. There's no, there's, there's nothing, there's no disrespect. There's nothing. It's the fact that I love you enough to have to tell you the truth. And unfortunately, I'm the one that has to tell you the truth. Because many people won't. Yo, I feel, I feel for Jeremiah. I feel for him. Because then, then you're known as the bad person that said the bad things that hurt people. Well, if you look at what was said, if the advice would have been heeded, you would have grown closer to God. So how is that disrespectful? It's disrespectful when you're blinded by your own sin and you're not willing to accept correction. All right? All right. That's not even in here. But that's for y'all. All right, Jeremiah's mourning, it foreshadowed Jesus' mourning. In a similar manner, Jesus wept over the people's sins. Let's take a look at Matthew chapter 9, verse 36. It says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were confused and helpless like a sheep without a shepherd. What breaks your heart, church? This morning, think about that. What breaks your heart? And before you answer that question, let's take a look at the things that broke Jeremiah's heart and Jesus' heart and what should be breaking your heart. We're going to start with Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 4 to 7. Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 4 to 7, it says, Jeremiah, say to the people, this is what the Lord says. When people fall down, don't they get up again? Do they? All right. When they discover they're on the wrong road, don't they turn back? Okay. Then why do these people stay on their self-destructive path? Why do the people of Jerusalem refuse to turn back? They cling tightly to their lies and will not turn around. I listen to their conversations and don't hear a word of truth. Is anyone sorry for what, for, for doing wrong? Yo, that's the world we're living in today. When you address somebody's wrongness, they'll make excuses or justifications of why they're wrong, but no one can say, I'm sorry, God. I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have thought that way. All right. Does anyone say, what a terrible thing I have done? No. All are running down the path of sin as swiftly as a horse galloping into battle. Even the stork that flies across the sky knows the time of her migration. 
as do the turtle dove, as the swallow and the crane. They all return at the proper time each year, but not my people. They do not know the Lord's laws. The first point I want to make this morning is let your heart be broken by turning from sin. God told Jeremiah (laughs) to say, why have these people turned away? Why is Jerusalem always turning away? They take hold of the seat, the lies. They take hold of that, and they refuse to return. And we know that they refuse to return because Jeremiah was sent to deliver a message to come back. And they were not listening. He was sent with a message of repent, and they were not repenting. And so they were not willing to go back. In those days, people had turned to God. And like I just said, they refused. They refused to repent. They refused to to, to turn back. It's like they had no desire to go back to God. This is a nation that has seen the hand of God. Like, I mean, mean, come on. Deliverance, provision, right? uh, Supernatural provision, food from the sky. This people, these people, they saw the hand of God. And yet, when they were going down the wrong path, they refused to turn back to him. Like many people that have once experienced God, right? They've experienced God. They had an encounter with God. They were serving the Lord. Or perhaps they've been in church 20 years. 10, 20, 25 years, and, that, and there was some season in there where there may have been passion for God's things. But then sin creeps in, and then there's a separation because sin separates us from God, right? And so sin comes in, and then more, and more, and the separation between us and God increases, and it increases. And before you know it, you've grown apart. The way some people would like to say, to their boyfriends and girlfriends, because I, I don't believe in that in marriage, but like they like to say to their boyfriend and girlfriends, oh, we just grew apart. We just grew apart. The reality is it was never an effort to continue to grow closer. It takes work. They should have known better because Jeremiah reminded them <laughs> that when you fall down, you get back up. These people knew better. Like I just said, they knew God. They had the scriptures, right? They, 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 should, they should have known better. And he's saying, listen, when people fall down, don't they get back up? When somebody goes down the wrong road or takes a wrong turn, don't you circle the block and get right back on path? People just don't want to be held accountable these days. I don't know. I know some, not everybody has Facebook, but um, I, was, I was just kind of like doing a recap of last Sunday's sermon last night before getting into this one on Facebook. And um, I kind of went, I don't know how we got there, but all of a sudden I, I was talking about the fact that people want to serve God under their own conditions. We want to be Christians under our own conditions. We want to serve God the way we want to, not the way the word says to. 
And so as long as we can show up, right, and, and do what we feel is necessary to, to satisfy your own, okay, well, I checked that off. Now I'm good. I can continue living the rest of my life the way I want to. People don't want to be held accountable. And one thing I said that I don't know if I said it as clear last night as I was thinking it, because I didn't want to offend people, because I know we don't want to offend anyone ever. That's never our intention. But the truth is this. If you don't want to be held accountable, if you want to do whatever you want to do and call yourself a Christian, then this is not the church for you. If you want to grow in your walk with God, if you want to be a part of a family that's going to hold you accountable, that's going to love you enough to tell you when you're wrong, love you enough when things are going great to celebrate with you, right? To, to, have, to have fun with you, to cry with you. This is the type of church we are. I want, I, I'm not here to spend time just trying to fill the church. I want you guys to be tr- uh, r- true disciples of Christ. And I have to answer, I have a boss to answer to one day. Now, if you want to feel like a Christian, but you don't want to live like a Christian, then there's plenty of churches in the city that you could be part of, that just, you could sit down and you could be part of the show. You could be part of the entertainment of the events that they're, one event after another after another, and I don't know before they run out of ideas of what to do just to keep people entertained. Because that's the world that we're living in. Because guess what? I'm not, we're not going to be doing a, a, a justice to you, putting on a show just so that you can come to church if your soul is still lost. You'll still go to hell. Do you understand what that means? I can't feel good filling a whole auditorium of people so I could give a show and then half of those people are going to burn in hell because there's no accountability. There's, no, there's a lack of truth. It's quiet. You guys, I'm sorry, guys. I'm sorry. I know there are places that will love for you to be another number. Another number in the pew. Another number in the seat. That honestly... Unfortunately, in the world that we're living in, could care less about your soul. I don't know. I don't know how, how there's no conviction. They have to answer to God. And I'm not perfect. I'm far from it. I'm far from it, but church, know my heart. Know my heart, church. Let your heart be broken by turning from sin. One of the great problems in modern Christianity that we're facing, right, is that we practice, it's the practice of confession of sin without repentance. So let me explain what that means, right? That means this. Uh, let's turn to 1 John. We hold on to, to verses like 1 John 1, nine. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. Right? Woo! I love it. Confess your sins. Confess your sins. Confess your sins. Not, I'm not saying not to do it. The Bible says to do it. 
So do it. Confess your sins. The Bible tells us to do it. But some people stop there. Luke chapter 5, 32 says, I have come. And this is Jesus speaking. I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but, to, but those who know they are sinners and need to repent. We treat repentance, I think, I think somebody, uh, Veronica said this last night on the live, as a one-time thing. Remember? We think, we think it's a one-time thing. We just go, we ask God, we're sorry. We want to, no, repentance is a continual thing on a daily basis. You telling me you didn't do nothing wrong last night? You didn't think nothing wrong last night? You didn't speak to somebody wrong in the last couple days? You need to repent from that. Not only, not only Lord, forgive me of my sins. I spoke badly to my husband, to my wife. Um, thank you. And then go back and do it again and do it again and do it again. Now, sometimes there are some things that take time and it's a process, but it's a continual daily repentance that is needed. It's an effort. It's intentional. Jesus doesn't want us to just acknowledge our sin. Because when we, when we confess our sin to him, we are acknowledging the things that we've done wrong, right? When we're confessing, sorry, I stole the last cookie when no, when no one was looking. I mean, you're confessing that you're wrong. He doesn't want you to just acknowledge what you've done wrong. He wants you to turn from it and not do it again. Remember what Jesus said? He's, to those that he forgave, he forgave them. And he says, go and sin no <laughs> oh, we're like kids that just don't behave, right? Like, like my daughter, when she does something, she knows she's not, she's, she knows not she's supposed to do it. She's not supposed to do it. And then it's, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I'm like, I, but we told you not to do this. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. You know how many sorries come out? And the very next day, what she do? Do it again. That's what we look like in the eyes of God. Like those little kids that you tell them over and over and over again, and, we, and they still do it. But each time they say sorry. As a parent, those sorries, they start to pile up and they start to, to irritate you. I don't want to hear sorry. Camille, Camille tells Abigail, don't tell me sorry. Just don't do it again. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That's what we sound like to God when we confess our sins, confess our sins, confess our sins, but then don't change. And don't repent. That's, that's exactly what we look like. We're, come on. How many of y'all have done that? God, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to do this. I'm not going to do it again, Lord. Or, and I, th- I think I've said this before, right? Um, you're not supposed to be drinking, and you go out drinking, and you're hugging the toilet. <gasps> I'm sorry. God, just get me out, get me through this night. Just get me through the, just get me, get me through this night. I promise I won't drink anymore. And then the next day when you feel better, like, yo, we going out tonight. All right. I've been there. I've done that. I look back and I said, man, I'm so sorry, God. Sorry, because it was like I was taking him almost 
like as a joke. It's like, like I'm, I'm like, you know, I'm not taking God seriously. I thank them for his mercy and his grace upon my life throughout all my years of rebellion. When we repent, we turn from our sin and we cease from doing it. We stop it. There was an evangelist named Sammy Tippett, right? And he wrote this. He said, too many in the West desire to know the manifest love of God without the manifest holiness of God. <sighs> Too many in the West desire to know the manifest of God without the manifest holiness of God. We have lost the message of repentance. Now the church in the West, you know what he's talking about, right? He's talking about the, like us, the United States, so, you know, North America, is the sleeping giant. The church in the east sends a strong message. The repenters must repent. So if we, to, to kind of let's make, make sure that we all understand this, he says that many people desire the love of God, right? Because it's real cool when we talk about the love of God. We want the love of God. We want his love. We want to to. to, to benefit from his love. We want to be in his love. We, we, you know, we, we want to, you know, hug trees and sing kumbaya. We want all that, right? <laughs> but we don't, want, we, don't want to, we don't want to talk about the holiness of God because when we talk about the holiness of God, then we get into a topic where he says, be holy as I am holy. I, I don't know. It says it somewhere in the Bible, does it not? When we, when we start to go into the conversation of holiness, we understand that the Word of God tells us to be holy as He is holy, but then to be holy means that our lives must change. To be holy means that we can't look like the world. To be holy means that we are set apart. To be holy means that, guess what? We, we got to be held to a higher standard. His standard. Well, I don't know why pastor making a big deal about it. Everybody does it. Woo. I don't know why he got to come at me. Everybody else is doing this. Not everybody else. Maybe, maybe those in the world are, and it's okay. But it is not okay for someone that is called to be holy as he is holy. This is definitely not a celebrative sermon here. <laughs> hey, today, there's food in the back, right? I think we're giving it for free. Listen, there is free food today for everybody, all right? So don't leave. So when soon as the service is over, come to the back, have a seat, eat with us, all right? All right? All right? Woo! And, then, and I know y'all got plans. I know y'all got plans. But then leave right after. Leave right after and you save money on the restaurant. All right. <laughs> Repent is a gift of grace. A, re a repentant person is willing to leave the destructive path as a prisoner is willing to leave a dungeon. 
Tell me, tell me right now. If you are a prisoner locked up in a dungeon and you have the opportunity to get out, who's going to want to get out? And he's saying that's how we should be as repentive people. Having an opportunity to repent and to leave that, we should be as, as, as excited, as, as driven, as, 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 as forward as someone who is being set free from a dungeon. Because repentance sets us free. It sets us free. Jeremiah 8, chapter 8, verse 13. It says, how can you say... We are wise because we have the word of the Lord. When your teachers have twisted it by writing lies, these wise teachers, they will fall into the trap of their own foolishness, for they have rejected the word of the Lord. Are they so wise after all? I will give their wives to others. Oh, heck no. I just finished saying, you know, no. <laughs> I will give their wives to others and their farms to strangers. From the least to the greatest, their lives are ruled by greed. Yes, even my prophets and priests are like that. They are all frauds. They offer superficial treatments for my people's mortal wounds. This, this is why I just finished saying that we're not a church that's going to give out superficial treatments. I can't do that. They give assurance of peace when there is no peace. They are, they, are they ashamed of these disgusting actions? Not at all. They don't even know how to blush. <laughs> Therefore, they will lie among the slaughtered and will be brought down when I punish them, says the Lord. I will surely consume them. There will be no more harvest of figs and grapes. Their fruit trees will all die. Wherever, whatever I gave them will soon be gone. I, the Lord, have spoken. The point number two that I want to make, the first one being, remember, let our heart break. Let our heart break um, by turning from sin. But the second point I want to make is let your heart be broken by practicing God's word. Let our hearts be broken by practicing God's word. The roots of Judah's sin the nation of Judah, the root of their sin was failure to repent and the rejection of God's word. They were rejecting his word. Verse 9 says, they have rejected the word of the Lord. They had the word, they knew the word, yet they didn't practice it. Like many of us that have the Bible, we read it occasionally, but we don't do what it says. Year after year, the Bible remains number one bestseller. Right? Give it up. The Bible. Woo! Give it up. Go Bible. Number one bestseller. Year after year after year. Yet, although of its popularity, <laughs> society seems to continue to crumble spiritually and morally. There seems to be little connection between what people say they believe and the way they live out their lives. In the times that we're living in right now, it seems to have little connection of people that say, I'm a Christian, and how they live out their Christian lives. 
I remember um, when, <laughs> being in the military, right? Almost everyone, something, right? We're all Christians. As a matter of fact, on the dog tags, you got you to gotta tell them what you are. Because if you were to die in combat, that specific pastor or priest or rabbi, whatever it was toward, whatever your belief was, that would be the individual they would bring to pray over your, your body and, and then they would take care of the things like that. So that's why they would ask you, like, what are you, right? And everyone would put something. And I, I would be baffled. I would be surprised when I'm like, yo, dude, you a Christian? You a Christian? Yeah. I'm like, oh, really? Oh, you know, I mean, I believe in God. How many of us have heard that? I believe in God. Can I tell you a secret? Even the devil believes in God. Did you know that? The devil knows that there's a God. <laughs> so even us saying, I, I believe there's a God, that, that means nothing. I believe there's a God. Could the problem be that while we read and believe the word of God, we just are failing to practice it. James 1.22 says, but don't, don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you are only fooling yourself. It broke Jesus' heart that the scribes and the Pharisees, the students of the law, the students of the word of God, they didn't practice it. They knew it. They knew it all. That was their job to know it. And yet they didn't practice it. They would argue and debate about the scriptures, and yet they did not accept and follow its statutes, right? They had knowledge of the law, but they would not apply it to themselves. When we begin to put God's word into practice, church, it will change your heart. It will change your life. It will break your heart. We will see people as God sees them. We will hurt over the injustices. We will be sensitive to the lonely, to the abused, to the neglected. We will cry out for the lost and the dying. We will feel deeply about his passion to reach the world. When we, this is the thing, when, we, when he is asking God, break my heart for what breaks yours, right? Is God's heart not broken when he sees the hurt, hurt people? Like, we should be broken too. And this is, this is really hard to do when we encounter difficult people in life because some people can be difficult. Did y'all know that? Some people are difficult. And then we really have to, if, if, if we desire to be used by God, we have to get to a point, Lord, let me see what you see. Let me see what you see. Because I don't know, Alneda, I don't know about Alneda. Yo, her neck be moving too much when she's talking to me. <laughs> Lord, let me see what you see. And then God will show you the heart. Oh, she's just been hurt. Or she's just going through this. She's going through that. What you need to be is you need to be by her side, embracing her being the love of God that she so desperately needs right now in her life. Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 8 to 18 to 20 says, 
Uh, my grief is beyond healing. My heart is broken. Listen to the weeping of my people. It can be heard all across the land. Has the Lord abandoned Jerusalem? The people ask, is her king no longer there? Oh, why have they provoked my anger with their carved idols and their worthless foreign gods? The harvest is finished, says the Lord. The harvest is finished and the summer is gone. The people cry, yet we are not saved. The next point is let your heart be broken by realizing the urgency of the hour. Let your heart be broken about like, though time is running out. Time is running out. Jesus is coming soon. And if, he's, and if he doesn't get here, you will die eventually. Like the, the, the reality is Christ is going to come or you're going to die. Can, can, I be, can I be real? That, those are the two things that are going to happen. Either he returns or we die before that happens. Either which way, eternity comes right after that. Our hearts will break for the urgency of the hour. Look what Jeremiah says in verse 20. He says, the harvest is finished and the summer is gone. The people cry, yet we are not saved. The harvest was a time to gather the grain, right? The harvest was a time that they would go, they would harvest the grain, they would store it all up, and they would be set for the winter. The summertime was a time that they would go out and gather all the fruit because the fruit would grow in the summer. But usually if one failed, right, if they didn't have fruit, at least they had grain. If they didn't have grain, at least they had fruit. But if both failed, tragedy would face the people. I don't know much about farming. I'm not a farmer, right? But uh, a farmer has but a brief moment to harvest the crop before it spoils, before it gets all messed up. You know what I mean? Um, and so what happens is this. Like there's a, there's a time to harvest. You got to be urgent about doing it. If a farmer sat back and was like, ah, I know it's time, but you know what? I don't feel like it today. I'll get to it. Every day delayed is a day with crops lost. Sense of urgency is required to bring in the harvest, and a similar urgency needs to be within each and every one for the harvest of souls. Do you guys, you guys understand that? The harvest, the time is now. The time of the harvest is now. The harvest of souls that are lost, that are going to hell without Christ. And each and every one of you, knowing the truth, knowing the truth, the, the, the truth that Jesus came to save, to set free, to bring eternal life, and yet not sharing it, Every day that goes by, crops are lost. People are lost. It's estimated that over 30 million people worldwide will die without Christ each year. 30 million people. Of the 300 plus million people in the U.S., it's estimated that 41% of those 300 plus people in the U.S., don't go to church at all. 
not even on Easter and Christmas. And if they were to die, would go to eternal punishment without knowing the love of Christ. The harvest is plenty. What does the word say? Oh, my, oh, wait, it's right here. I'm going to read it next. Uh, Matthew chapter 9, verse 37 to 38, he said this to the disciples, the harvest is great, but the workers are few. So pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest. Ask him to send more workers into his field. Millions of people are without Christ right now. Millions of people. That's a lot of work. And even those that attend church, even those that have relationship with God, even those that call themselves Christians, how many of those, let me just say us, how many of us are actively working to bring in the harvest? Because if that was the case, every church in Philadelphia would need more room. Every church in Philadelphia would be bursting at the doors if Christians were doing their part to bring in the harvest. There's a lot to do, and the workers are few, says the Lord. He saw the people. Jesus saw the clock. He saw the people. He saw the time was running out, and his heart broke. His heart broke. Is your heart breaking for the many souls that will die without ever knowing God, without ever knowing Christ? Like, does that bother you? I mean, don't tell me yes or no, you know, especially if it's no, don't tell me. Does it break your heart to know that right now there are people dying without Christ and will spend an eternity in hell? Does that not bother you? Does that not make you hurt just a little? What are we doing about it? What are we doing about it? Next, Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 21. It says, since my people are crushed, I am crushed. I mourn and horror grips me. Next point is that your heart be broken by watching someone self-destruct. We all got someone in our life that is just like killing themselves with their lifestyle. They just don't want to take advice. They just they just going down the wrong path. Let your heart be mourned. Let your heart be broken by someone who's self-destructing. Jeremiah, he mourned over the people. He was shaken up. He was disturbed. It's like watching a, it's like a parent watching a child that's making all the wrong life choices. All the wrong life choices and that are taking them down a horrible path. I know when our children are young, it's not, as, it's not as impactful, but as our children become teenagers and, and older, we see some of the decisions that they make. And sometimes as a parent, um, especially when the child has left the house, like I know in my situation, when I had already left for the Marines, I could only imagine what my parents were feeling when I was making all the wrong choices in, 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 my, rebellion, in my rebelliousness against God. I could imagine what, what, how their heart was breaking for them to watch their son, that they tried so hard to keep in, 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 in the way of the Lord, to then turn away from God. 
and not be able to do anything about it except continue to pray. And that's what it felt like. Our heart should break when we see people. Your heart should be broken when you see people that are heading down a destructive path. The way Jeremiah would look at the nation and says, if they only, only knew. How often does your heart break for our friends, your family, your coworkers, your neighbors that are living reckless lives? What are we doing about it? Jeremiah 8.22 says, is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then is there no healing for the wound of my people? Next point and the final point is let your heart be broken by people refusing the cure. So let me explain something to you. No balm in Gilead. Half of you are like, what the heck is a balm in Gilead, right? Balm is, is, is a word used for, for medicine, right? Gilead is a place. It's a town. So medicine from Gilead. Jeremiah was now looking toward the east, right, to the town of Gilead. It was located in the mountain region of, uh, east of the Jordan River and north of Moab. It was famous for its healing ointment, right? They had like some kind of like ointment that, that would heal, right? And it was taken from a particular tree that was only found in Gilead, in that region. So that's why they were known as the town that heals. That's why they got that name, a city with a cure, a town that heals. Gilead would serve as a symbol of hope, like when, when, when you're dying, there's hope in Gilead, you know, because they have medicine that can help you, right? It was a place of remedy. Jeremiah was saying, like, <laughs> he says that a remedy existed for the people, right? There's a remedy for your wound, and it's called repentance. That's what he was trying to tell him. Listen, listen, you're dying. You're sick. Things are not right. He goes, but there's a cure, and the cure is repentance, but they did not apply it. Some of us know people that get sick, right, that get prescribed medicine and then say, I ain't taking that. I'm not taking that. They refuse to take the medication or the treatment when they're given the cure. And yes, we can pray, and I'm not against prayer or healing because, hey, we, we serve a God that heals to this day. He heals. And he's also given our doctors wisdom um, to know what they're doing. And, and, and many times there are some medicines that we need to fight off certain infections, right? How about do we know any married couples that who's, when their marriage is on the rocks, right? When their marriage is on the rocks, you just refuse to seek help or counseling, Right? Marriage is definitely not okay. Not that, not that there's any perfect marriage. We all argue. We all go have conflict. But we all understand when it reaches a level where, like, I think we need to talk to somebody. I really think we should at least sit with somebody. <laughs> but it's like that couple refusing to seek help or counseling. 
It's like you rather go on year after year after year, marriage in turmoil and turmoil and turmoil, hurting the children, hurting the family, hurting everything, than just going for the cure, for the remedy. It's like someone who's spiritually lost and they know they need Jesus, but they don't do it. That was me. That was me when I was in the Marines. I knew I needed Jesus. Hey, I went to church every Sunday. Can I tell you that when I turned my back on God, I still went to church every Sunday? I did not miss a Sunday, no matter how late I was out on Saturday night. And that, that meant nothing for my soul. I knew I needed Jesus, but I kept telling myself, uh, all right, just a couple more months or just a little later, or let me just get some things out of the way because I know they were bad. Let me just do it now so when I get back to Christ, I'll be okay. Some of us know people like that. Some of us were people like that. I want to close with this. There was a 30-year-old man who climbed over the retaining wall at Niagara Falls. Don't ask me. I don't know why. I don't know why. Matter of fact, to this day, they still don't know why. (laughs) That's a good question, though. Why? He climbed over the retaining wall at Niagara Falls, fell over, and it was in a matter of seconds that the rushing currents were carrying him towards the 173 feet drop. Now, even if he wanted to get away from it, there was just no way. You can't, can't swim against that. There's no way. And the current took him, and he fell, and he fell down that thing. Now, miraculously, he survived. He had a big gash on his head, and he popped back up on the water, and they saw him clinging on to like a piece of wood that he found in the water. Now, at this moment, now at this moment, uh, uh, they could tell that the fierceness of the waters had, like, torn his clothes off. Like, that's how, that's how powerful the current was. And, you, like I said, no one usually survives that, but he was alive. Now, at this moment, he must have been 30 feet when they saw him from the shore. That's not, that's not super far, right? So the police officers that were on the scene were like, swim over here. Like, come to us. And the man looked and refused to swim toward the police. He refused. Soon later, a helicopter came by and extended like a pole that had like a sling on it. And, and they, got, they flew down real low. And they, put, they, they, they did like try to do a rescue mission. And every time the sling would get close to the man, he would push it away. He would push it away. He kept refusing the attempts to be saved. He kept pushing it away. At another point, the helicopter went down low and even like did like one of these maneuvers so that the wind would create like the, uh, push the water so that it could like push him toward the current, I mean, toward the shore. And, uh, 
as that was happening, he just continued to refuse. Now, at this point, he started getting a little closer to the shore, and they shouted again and tried to throw a rope, but he, nothing. So there was a firefighter on the scene who probably had enough of watching this. Probably was working 12 hours. What is it, 12, 14 hours sometimes? He was, he was tired, maybe. He just wanted to go home, maybe. He was like, enough. And he dove in there in the icy waters of this river, manhandled this dude, and pulled him into shore and rescued his life. He was rescued against his will. Now, afterwards, they, they, they came to the conclusion that the man was not in his right state of mind and, he, you know, he was, his mind was altered. He wasn't thinking right. But listen, I say this because Jesus sees people on a dangerous course, right? He sees us going down a dangerous river. A path of sin that does not have a good ending. Yet, despite how many times it's announced, <laughs> the warning of hell that lies ahead, people continue to swim on. They continue to stay in the current of their sins. Unrepentant. But as the clock ticks on, time is running out. Church, time is running out. But even as crazy as it is, people are still resisting rescue. People are still resisting rescue from the Savior, Jesus Christ. Does your heart break for people refusing a cure? Church, stand with me this morning. your heart break for people refusing a cure oh Jesus church can I, can I tell you that God wants to use you he does there's every person in this place right now, God wants to use you. It's not a matter of are you adequate enough or not. It's a matter of one, are you going to say enough to the excuses? Two, are you going to allow your heart to break for what breaks his? He wants to be glorified in your life. But our heart needs to break when we see people who are 
unrepentant. Our heart needs to break when we see that people don't practice God's word. Our heart needs to break when we see people who don't realize that time is running out. Our heart needs to break when we are seeing people who are self-destructing. Our heart needs to break when we, refu- when we see people that refuse the cure that's found in Christ. These, these things break his heart. Is it breaking yours? Or because of your pain and your hurt, because of the portrayals that have been done to you, because of the rejection that you've experienced in your life, because how someone said something that really destroyed your your confidence or your self-esteem or whatever it may be, because of all the things that have happened to you, has your heart hardened? as a self-defense mechanism because that's how God created us, right? But are we willing to be vulnerable before God and say, you know what? What's more important, what's more important than protecting my pride or my ego is seeing people come to Christ. Does anybody agree with that? Do we we agree with this? Because sometimes our hearts are so hard. We're so hard because we have gone through it. And some of us have gone through it. There's no denying it. There's no minimizing the things that you've gone through. You've gone through it. You've been hurt. You've been scarred. And you you know many times who gets hurt the most? It's not the one person you see randomly on social media saying, I'm hurt. Usually, the people that are truly hurt, they won't put it for the world to see. If you look around, your leaders, those that serve you, many times we experience a hurt that's beyond measure, and guess what? We can't stop. leaders and and those that serve in ministries, they experience hurt because they pour themselves out for you. They sacrifice their families for you. They take time away of their own personal lives to invest in your future, your future walk with God. And when they encounter people, that say things about them or turn against them or whatever the case may be, that's, that hurts. Because all they ever wanted was the best for your life. And so what that does, it hardens your heart. It hardens your heart and you tell God, I'll keep preaching, I'll keep teaching, I'll keep serving, I'll do what I got to do. I don't want to talk to nobody. I don't want want to love anyone. Are you willing to let him break your heart this morning for the things that breaks his?